How's it going, Paul? Enjoying lockdown, mate? Yeah, it's all right. I've uh, been able to rediscover um, gaming, which has been good, you know. <laughs> this is pretty much what we were just talking about. I've been playing uh, Jedi Fallen Order, and I've just went on a pure, massive Star Wars binge. Like, I can't stop myself now. Wow. Can't imagine. Any uh, the game's time. amazing. I, I can't imagine an MP's get much time for gaming, mate. No time for much, you know. Um, yeah, so it's been the slowdown's been uh, good in some respects, I suppose, you know. But it gets a bit frustrating after a while, I think. You know, the novelty's definitely worn off. Why? For Big sure, time. for sure, mate. I can being confined to a house, even no matter what your situation. I think, it, like you're saying, it does end up feeling. I don't know, cabin fever or something like that. You just you want to just yeah. break it. Why just go and run, run along a lock Lomond or something? I don't know. Just go and let myself go fucking mental. Aye, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean, mate. Me and the missus had were were first sort of big um, lockdown Barney um, after so like eight weeks was not too bad. Um, she got a new rug that we were trying to tuck under the, the couch, and I lost the rag weight because the couch clicks together and I couldn't click it back together. I stormed mm-hmm. it into the kitchen. The next thing she was. Uh, you know, throwing burgers about the kitchen in a huff as well, and then ten minutes later we were just like, that had absolutely so nothing to do with anything that was going on here whatsoever. This is just the the, the pot bubbling out at the same time. You know what I mean? So it was quite funny actually watching her go back and pick up her burgers and stuff like that. <laughs> it is a bit strange, you know, just having to deal with the non-specific stress and anxiety. You know, I think exercising helps. To be honest with you, if you're out running, it just helps you to burn off a bit of. Kind of, that kind of need, you know, that kind of thing when your your leg just starts kind of going, you know, like shiver, uh, trembling, you know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you start getting sort of nervous ticks and stuff like that. You're just sitting going, yeah, yeah, yeah. try and shake it off. But I uh, exercise has helped me a lot, man. Absolutely, man, definitely. But I mean, since the last time we spoke, Paul, like so much has changed. I mean, not only oh. just with your own situation, but politics in general. I mean, if has been. You could write <laughs> no, I don't think yeah. you could write a script that would that would come out with this. I think if you were to sit down and say to somebody even six months ago that we would be like this, you would have been like, fuck off, no chance. Absolutely no chance. But I yeah. For sure, mate. Um I mean, even just in, in the Labour Party, what do you know anything about the, the, the differences in the party since it's been Jeremy A. Um Keor? Yes, there's a bit of transition period, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, politically, it's um, it was a fairly uh, it was a fairly expected outcome, I think. To be fair, like the, the front runners from the start um, came out in the end. You know, I was back in Angela Reno for deputy, um, mm-hmm. and was was helping out in her campaign over the last few months until uh, the start of April. And yeah, no, I mean, it's, I think at this current point in time, because the leadership announcement happened during the lockdown, like there's not been the same sort of uh, focus on what is this new leader going to be about? What is their agenda? Mm-hmm. It's purely been a somewhat a somewhat muted start. So it's been all about, you know, how do you make an impact without coming across as opportunistic in the context of a massive crisis where the public's expecting politics to be put to one side as much as it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, it, it betrays a somewhat simplistic understanding of what politics is because ultimately all decisions that are made are, have an element of political judgment in them. Um, I mean, you see things like uh, the way that there's been manipulation of statistics and figures going on, particularly around testing. Yeah, you know, yep. to meet these targets and stuff. 
then politics starts to creep into it. You see the demonization of the education trade unions in the last week about schools returning and teachers saying yeah. it's not safe, medical professionals saying it's not safe, but clearly there's a, you know, a, a financial interest from certain groups that influence politics who want to see this lockdown stop, regardless of the public health issue. Yeah. You know, so I mean, the teaching... Sorry. I was going to say, inevitably, you know, there's going to be conflicts of interest based on class or, or those kind of tensions, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to pick up, sorry, just on, on the, the sort of teaching unions, because that's one that's kind of really grabbed my attention this week is the, the, the overt sort of press pressure that's now starting to be applied. And it feels like the unions and the teachers that they represent are just the latest because we've had the build-up to lockdown felt like there was a lot of, you know, managing our expectations in the press that's then continued on through various stages of the lockdown through the easing of measures in recent weeks. And it's all it feels like what the government wants has been fairly clearly signposted in the press and then sort of chased after until such times as the public kind of pushes back, as was the case with, you know, things like the, the furlough payments and stuff like that, because that 60% figure was in the air. You know, it's... it's you know, the closest thing a U-turn I've ever really seen this government day in years because public pressure and public opinion very rarely actually sways them on these types of things when they've made these ideological decisions to cut people's money, cut people's benefits, put them under the pressures that they're under. Like, they don't ever really turn around. And I think the unions, you know, got a bit of stick for, well, people are getting addicted to furlough and all this kind of nonsense when actually folk are just trying to survive. And then a week later, when we've seen that with the, with the teachers and the unions that represent them, and it's... It's really kind of, it's, it's quite worrying for me that, you know, pressure's being exerted in this manner when the experts in these fields are actually saying, no, it's no time for schools, no, it's no time for reasoning measures, no, it's no time for, you know, money to be cut, etc. Like, well, we, had, we had a culture war over Brexit, you know, um, and this is totally throwing the chessboard over again. You know, it's a totally new dimension in which we're discussing politics again, and it's very much on an economic level. Um, and you're right, you know, one thing that's betrayed is the last 10 years of so-called austerity um, was a political choice, you know, that, you know, it was based on a really um, disingenuous uh, analysis of what the economy is and how it works, you know, yep. it's actually, you know, if there's a recession or a crisis, then this government has to step in to pick up the slack, you know, it's not a problem, you know, the framing of it as addicted, uh, somehow morally, um, inferior to involve the state or its taxpayers' money, yep. in inverted commas. In reality, mm. money is money. You know, it doesn't really matter whether it sits on the state's books or in the public and uh, the private sector's books, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a fixed amount of money that flows around the economy, you know what I mean? Yeah. The key thing is to be rolling, you know, and that was the big problem with the, the, uh, the, the, the lockdown because if a company's business income stopped, if a person's income stopped, you know, that's going to cause massive hardship very quickly. So yep. it was obvious that the government had to step in and basically do CPR on the economy, you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> to keep the blood yep. pumping or keep the money pumping around the economy. And why would you then start to bleed out the country deliberately when it's trying to recover? You know, by saying, oh, they're addicted to it, you know, we need to get them off of this. It's like, that's, that's a kind of perverse idea. And hopefully more people have realised that now, you know, because yeah. it's like, you know, 
forty percent of the population is now on furlough or on public sector pay. You know, mm-hmm. so this idea that you're going to then, when the the country really needs a to 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 turn Boris Johnson's phrase against them, you know, rocket packs or jet, you know, to boost the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The opposite thing to, to doing that is to then like have another wave of austerity, public sector pay cuts. Yeah. You know, to turn all this bullshit narrative about, you know, valuing key workers when they're out clapping every Thursday and then say, oh by but we also want to cut your pay for the next two years. I genuinely think like this is some sort of like psychological warfare that's been but done not deliberately but just because we've got a bunch of fucking idiots in charge that don't really know where to put their attention and in one press conference you've got the chancellor saying we've got unlimited funds don't worry like calm down try to calm (laughs) back at the start but then coming out two weeks later and going this is costing us too much it's like no fucking shit it's costing us a lot of fucking money but what yeah. what are the alternatives? They they can't give well, us an alternative other than get yourself back to work. Well, exactly. You know, and the big the best comparison is probably the end of the Second World War because um, the main lesson from that was people had lived through the nineteen thirties and the depression, and they were like, "We're not going back to that." Um, and how come if we mobilised the whole country to fight a war and everybody was fully employed, can we not continue that idea after we've? You know, after the war fin- finishes, mm-hmm. that's where the whole idea of creating a welfare state came out of, um, and that's why for you know thirty years, right up into the, the late seventies, you know the country grew very strongly. There was full employment, there was industrial growth, you know, because the country invested its way out of the economic crisis of the thirties and the Second World War, mm-hmm. so that the national debt ended up becoming really small because the country, the country's actual wealth grew way beyond the debt. You know, this idea you need to pay back a debt. Yeah. It's, you know, the country can borrow from itself. It prints its own money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and this idea there's a magic money tree. There is a magic money tree. It's called the Bank of England. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's it. It, can print, yeah. it can print money. And you know what? Um, even though debt's rising, the actual cost of borrowing is dropping um, because the safest thing to invest your money in right now is government bonds. So... It's actually easier for the government to borrow, you know, a hundred million um, on a thirty-year term, and it's costing them li- li- barely less than one percent to borrow it. Five percent, point five percent, I think it is. Yeah. You know, so the government can easily borrow all this money. The economy can hopefully grow faster than the cost of the interest on the money, and then that's how you build back. Better That's the thing as well. The growth figures are going to spike pretty quickly when things start to move again. And obviously, I think the ONS did the, the last financial quarter recently, just up until the, the sort of lockdown point, and it had kind of shown a slowdown as a result of people obviously losing confidence as, as coronavirus spiked. But when the country actually gets moving again, when you base these types of things on like growth figures, the actual movement of money is going to show quite you know, encouraging figures, you would imagine, when things actually get moving again. I'd hope so, but again, the, the risk is, you know, the key thing is to keep workers attached to jobs and companies functioning. You know, yeah. it kind of went into hibernation just now, so it's making sure as this comes back that that all doesn't fall apart, that structure, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's why I'm worried about the government saying, oh, we're going to wean people off. It's like, no, you need to keep that that oxygen supply going until such a time as everybody's happy that we're back on an even queue. Yeah. And in fact, you know, when you've got um, 
you know, two million people applied for universal credit. It's a ready-made infrastructure for like a basic income. You know, why not use that just to pump money into the people's pockets right away? You know, yep. we spent the last, if, if you remember back to the financial crash in 2008, it was the talk of quantitative easing where the Bank of England would print money and then basically buy bonds and give the money or transfer the money into um, banks like RBS to try and save yep. them from collapse. Um, but the money never left those banks. You know, loads of businesses collapsed. You know, the RBS in turn, like, destroyed loads of businesses like basically forced them into bankruptcy destroyed loads of jobs so that method of trying to recover the economy didn't work as efficiently as it could but it could work even better if you just bypassed all the banks and put the money into people's pockets yeah. and people are going to especially poorer people they're going to go out and spend that money they're going to you know shops are going to thrive businesses are going to thrive and then that creates the buzz and the vibrancy you need to actually get things back up and running it's quite interesting. We've spoke UBI a number of times. Um, we've had, uh, well, another like yourself returning guest in Jamie Cook, um, who yeah. has come in a few times to speak about UBI with. And it's it's quite amazing how it's went through, again, even in the, the, the six months between us talking then and now, it's went through being quite a fringe idea that people had like serious reservations about ever meaningfully working to it being something that, has really like become quite a mainstream idea. You've seen, you know, American presidential campaigns where UBI is the cornerstone of it. You know, it's been talked about all across Europe. You know, places in Scandinavia have brought in equivalents, and it's became this kind of party that I think is really an important lesson that we can learn in all this. And it's how we come out of this on the other side. I think UBI definitely, definitely needs to be on the table for like a more in-depth and sort of widespread discussion in the UK like it's well, I agree with the, you it's a combination you know a lot of people have got concerns from I mean it's a it's a strange idea in the sense that it cuts across traditional left and right um thinking because you've got a lot of right wingers who propose it because they see it as a way of replacing benefits completely yeah um, and it'd be a flat it'd be a flat rate thing which is not necessarily what I agree with but I think you create a kind of floor below which no one can drop below yeah. But you still have targeted benefits to what people who are like, you know, disabled or whatever, or get kids and so on. Um, but no, you're right because I mean, look at the I mean, at the point I was trying to make uh, this week was about um, how most people in this country rely on some form of income to survive. And you know, if you lose a job, for example, you're only going to be like two months away from being in difficulty. Uh, you know. And most folk are living two yep. paychecks away from, you know, a problem, you know. So why would you have the country living like that, you know? Why would you have the no. country living with that kind of underlying stress? You know, it's much better that people are able to bargain better for jobs. It raises yep. the wages, it raises standards of jobs. And also, if you're looking at productivity, Britain's got one of the worst productivity rates in the world. For sure. If you're actually, if you're actually got people going, well, we're not going to work doing that daft job because it's a, it's a mind-numbing job. It encourages a business to say, right, let's automate that job or let's invest to make it more efficient. And that job's released into a more higher value activity. Yeah. You know, so that's we actually improve the economy overall. You know, um, the reason why businesses don't invest is because it's, it's cheaper to employ people on slave wages. Yeah. Do you think that exactly. we've been talking quite a lot amongst me and Matt about the potential changes that could come out of the, the other side of this? Because... I work for a, I work in the corporate world, and everybody has just been sent a laptop and can now do their job effectively from home. Mm. So, 
when they try and get me to go back to the office for 40 hours a week, I'm maybe going to put my hand up and go, I, I, I don't want to be doing that because I, I enjoy spending more time in, in the house and I, my lunch hour, I get to work out and I get to spend time with my girlfriend and maybe not full time working from home, but maybe partially. Do you think that these are the types of changes that people will be able to say, listen, um, let's, I want to do X, Y, and Z, or do you think it will just come down to basically whether or no the company sees it as being profitable for them? Or Because I know for, well, for the company that I work with, there's, there's chat where they're saying, this is excellent because we no longer need to pay rent on a fucking office for people to go and sit in for 40 hours a week when we can just make this investment now and take the opportunity to evolve. Well, the risk is that, I mean, there's, there's a number of issues going up by this. And I think you're right. I mean, you've seen like Chief Executive Barclays and stuff like that saying, oh, this might change the whole future of office buildings and cities, you know, that you might not need these massive office buildings anymore. Um, skyscrapers and stuff. That uh, there's, there's a number of elements, maybe a psychological one, social interaction is an important part of people's lives. They spend yeah. a long, large part of their day. Um, if they're living in, you know, in, in a city, you're cooped up in a small flat, you know, working and sleeping and you know living in the same space might become actually quite you know um psychologically difficult mm-hmm. um that whilst it suits some people it might not suit others it's just it's, it's up to individuals but i think you're right you know there could be a much greater degree of flexibility around it um obviously some jobs require public interaction others aren't necessarily needing you to be interacting with the public or a customer um and I think there's also an element where companies might, like you say, try and cut overheads by passing the costs on to individ- onto workers. So, you know, your heating's on longer, your electricity's on longer. You're basically taking up the cost of the overheads from the company yeah. by paying your own bills more because, you know, you're going to be living in your house more, yeah. so there's more, there's more cost involved with that. You know, so there's, there's maybe things there that might need to be taken into consideration. It's not just a straightforward, or oh, we're liberated from the desk, you know. Um, obviously some jobs involve manufacturing, you know, so you physically need to be there or whatever, you know. But yeah, it's an interesting proposal, you know. Obviously Barclays in the middle of building this massive new office building in the South Bank. Yeah. You know, you wonder whether that's ever going to actually be completed, <laughs> you know. It's, it's, it's an odd time to question the need for a massive office building when you're halfway through building a massive office building, to be fair, you know what I mean? Well, <laughs> it's true. Well, Seems like a bit what type of leader do you think Keir Starmer's actually going to be? I mean, we we can, I, I mean, I, I trust the news very little, but it seems to be almost, he's getting painted as a centrist, um, he's a Blairite or whatever it might be, whatever smear. Um, there's a lot of stuff about photos of him in his barrister uniform saying, he, this is not a working class man, it's sort of making the assumption that people that are working class can't become barristers, which is kind of disrespectful to me yeah i mean i don't i don't i don't buy into that narrative i think there's a lot of bad faith um you know i'm like get let the guy get his ass in the seat you know what i mean yeah uh, actually see what he can do and it's difficult to actually showcase that when you're in the middle of a lockdown we are just dealing with the bare bones of having to like address the, the day-to-day tactics of this lockdown and what the government's doing clearly increasingly alarming stuff that's going on you know yeah. and uh what um what I'd say also is like he's not been able to appoint like a, a full team yet, or even get his full squad in to actually develop, you know, the, the, his positions on things. You know, so it's yeah. all a bit, still, still a bit scattergun. You know what I mean? But I think from his background, you know, he's. I mean, I've, I worked with him. He was very good on Brexit. I thought he was very, you know, 
laser-like in his ability to sort of see where we needed to go on things. Like most people were like looking towards him to, for some direction on that stuff. Obviously, it was a very technical, you know, tactical issue in Parliament. All the knife-edge votes and all these amendments and all that sort of stuff that was going on last year. But I think he represents a pretty solid set of left-wing policies uh, and principles. He comes from a background where he defend, you know, he's been defending. Uh, the rights of oppressed minorities, you know, Doreen Lawrence, for example, back to his leadership campaign. You know, he's got a hinterland that's fairly solid, in my opinion. You know, and I just think it's been a bit unfortunate that there has been a slightly sectarian um, sort of uh, attitude from certain factions in the party um, towards them. And I don't think they're mm. entirely justified, but I can understand a degree of impatience. You know, my instincts were, let's be more aggressive towards the Tories you know, let's say why, you know, like, let's get out of the traps quicker and be more aggressive and, uh, against them. Mm-hmm. And I think, though I, I take his point, though, he's like, you're not the person I need to convince to vote Labour. It's actually, you can't win unless you get Tories voting Labour. Yeah. You know, and it's not about capitulating to them. It's just about playing a slightly less aggressive partisan uh, hand, yeah. perhaps. But it's also like giving them enough rope to hang themselves. I don't know if you've been watching PMQs for the last few weeks, but... My take is that been watching it. my take is that he's basically beginning this kind of epic cross examination of Boris Johnson that's going to last for months. Yeah, and he's basically just he's letting them he's letting them say these things that is going to slowly but surely destroy him. You know, because yeah. every week he's saying something <clears throat> that's totally a, a lie or a contradiction, and when this comes to a judicial inquiry, which it will, you know, there's been thousands of deaths. You know, this stuff's all going to get laid out, and all the government papers are going to get investigated, and if he's been found to have you know, willfully denied advice, ignored and gerrymandered and, and mis, you know, mismanipulated figures and so on, you have to resign as Prime Minister, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's maybe the long, the longer-term goal here, mm. you know. Playing the long game, which would be the smart game. Um, a lot of what i seen for PM's cues last week, I think I watched it, was Boris Crumble under not a lot of pressure. <laughs> I mean, he well, looked like a rabbit. Bluffer. Sorry, mate. The guy's a massive bluffer. And... To some extent, you know, it suited him to just kind of go in with his gang of kind of Tory bullies and just like monster Jeremy Corbyn all the time. And it just became this like, you know, there was never any meaningful exchange of views there. Yep. You know, it was just, it was just entrenched positions, you know. I think this was something that um, Sean McDonald was tweeting about, you know. Um, he was saying that when you look at Boris Johnson with it, all the bluffing, blusteries, cronies behind him, it, it's just clear how much of what he does is just a total act you know even as he was answering questions this week to Starmer you could see him like looking about as if you know he was punctuating his speech in the exact same way that he always has done with his gestures but there was just nothing there for it to actually relate to and it shows you how kind of like robotic and kind of just ridiculous the guy is in that respect like I I think for people have seen it coming I mean people have seen it coming the guy I mean the guy isn't this kind of jovial um, clown, you know, he's not he's not like that. It's a much more sinister and contrived um, kind of pantomime act that he performs. You know, I've seen yeah. him like I've seen him with like perfectly normal hair, and then he comes in behind you know the the, the, the commons like into behind the speaker's chair, and he like deliberately ruffles his hair up to make him into this character. Mm-hmm. You know, and then because it's just really it's really like quite sinister. Yeah, well, I mean, you've you've heard people like Max Hastings who employed them at the at the Telegraph and stuff like that, saying this guy is not employable. He's a he's a charlatan, 
you know, he's a liar, he's a bluffer, he made up quotes, he got sacked from the newspaper, you know. So, yeah. like, it's amazing that in any other context, that would have been, a, like, a fatal, like, situation for any, like... Should be, yeah. You know, like, your, your credibility's been destroyed, you've not got a career, you know. It's amazing that he can just brass it out, because, like, whatever, I don't know what, what it is, I think there's just this kind of weird aura about him that people are just sycophants, you know. Yeah. Even just the creepiness of the fact that he left his wife, who was like, suffering from cancer, to go out with a, a woman who was like the same age as me, you know what I mean? Uh, now she's pregnant and moved into Downing Street. Yeah. You know? And it's like, it's like, I mean, in any other world that was, I mean, imagine Jerry Corbyn had done that, it would have oh, been, been, yeah. been destroyed in the press. Absolutely, mate. I mean, it's, it's, you know, essentially it's like the, the classic political scandal, isn't it? Like it's a type of perfumo type nonsense that has taken the careers of thousands of politicians all across the world since time began, you know what I mean? Like, and it's just, it's just I just bounced off them. Yeah, it seems to have just become so punch drunk, like from scandals, that nothing has any consequences anymore. Yeah, yeah. I agree, you know? man. I think that the Trump thing in America is almost a very similar thing where everything that he does wrong almost reinforces his support, where his support are like, but we love that. We love that he's a bit of an idiot. And it's, I think that the, the pre, when, when Trump became president in America, a lot of people were saying, this is, this is a dangerous thing for us to have this guy in charge because it, it, like you're saying, it almost like numbs you to, well, he did this and he comes out and he just brasses it, just goes, and what? Or just goes, aye, whatever, and just ignores it and moves on to the next thing. And his supporters are actually like, yes, that's what we want. We want this guy who kind of thinks the same way that I do and acts the same way that I want to act. And I think well, Boris has been part of that. Do you know what I mean? It's Yeah, I think actually the parallels with the rise of authoritarianism is quite, is quite alarming, you know, and I don't want to get down the old trope about, you know, fascism and all that sort of stuff but like the reality is that if democratic institutions and cultures start to get undermined very fatally which they kind of did through the early 2000s you know Iraq the MPs expenses scandal the church sex scandals and stuff all these kind of institutions that underpinned authority in society were kind of burned down basically and people just there was a license to just despise or be very cynical about leadership or authority and I think that opens up a vacuum where, like, absolute charlatans, populists can come in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they basically, by burning, like, by basically positioning themselves as acting against authority or, or any norm, they're able to reinforce their position. You yeah. know, and I think that's perhaps something to do with it. You know, um, so like, it's like Farage into Exactly that tactic. Of, it's off the back of the financial crash as well. You know, there was this whole system that caused poverty and people are looking for scapegoats and people to blame you know uh, and you know becomes you know oh it's it's the european union whatever you know let's just break away from it um it's taking all this money off of us and stuff and they, it becomes easy to point to something and go oh it's there they're the cause of the problem it's a bit like what trump's doing with china you know uh, i think to come back to to keir starmer but just you know i, I I, I acknowledge that it has been a bit of a ropey start, but primarily because of everything that's going on in the world just now. It's, it's going to be impossible to really get a lot of traction straight out, out the you know the trap. Yeah, I mean it's, it's um, one of things. It's one of these things where uh, you see on Twitter lots of takes and stuff, and and you're like, oh, that's it. It's a betrayal, and it's like you're kind of like you're kind of like 
like you, you understand how politics and parties work you know like it involves lobbying campaigning and influencing leaders and decision makers you know it's not like everybody's program like the borg to just immediately yeah. agree to whatever the, the leader decides you know and it's like for example on the housing policy that we came out about you know it wasn't it, you know there were there was clearly flaws in that housing policy announcement about um the two years to pay back a rent arrears and yeah you're like, you know and i was just like that's not that's not really thought through i can understand what they were doing Aye. you know like they're trying to get the tories to agree to something that's not as shit as what they've got but they would never agree to what we would do if we were in charge if you know what i mean I'm I'm like, why are we trying to you know there's an extent where you go why are we trying to you know flatter the tories like that you know let's just call it out for what it is i um, my first impression was a wee bit kind of you know as you say Coming out and being like we're going to kind of agree with the government was, you know, to paraphrase was was a bit of a kind of I slip. But I, I, I've enjoyed looking at and reading through the the PMQ stuff. Like I think it is important now more than ever that the government has somebody who's actually going to hold them to account. And um, so, you know, I'm definitely grateful for that respect. I think the one that kind of probably has left me with questions, Uyoya, and, and I don't know if you're in a position to talk about this or whatever um we had the the leaked report for you know accusations in 2017 that um you know potentially guys at the hq may have spiked corbyn's chances of winning and it kind of was a big story for a couple of days it seems to have kind of calmed down and i don't know if maybe the labor guys are just getting their ducks in a row to really address it properly or what's going on with it. is that something that you've got an opinion on i mean it's a big cultural change in the Labour Party in the last fifteen years. You know, what I mean, uh, I mean, it's a certain. It's funny, isn't it? Because like, when parties become a dominant force in politics, they attract, they attract careerists, and they attract kind of people who just want to jump on a bandwagon to advance themselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and I think through the latter stages of of the kind of Blair uh, governments, there was an element where if you were a young graduate and a young kind of person you wanted to get involved in the Labour Party because that was where you would go in politics, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the same like with SNP now, there's loads of like young professionals that join yeah. it. It's, it's, you know, it's success breeds success. You know, you don't want you want to back a winner, you know what I mean? So uh there's an element of that in every political party in the modern era, you know what I mean? Um and I think it was a hangover from those days where the politics might have changed in twenty fifteen with Corbyn, but the actual a permanent staff of the party in many ways hadn't had the machinery you know and i think there was a there was definitely a, a sort of um hostility institutional hostility by that group towards the leadership you okay. know and i was quite shocked to see the extent to which that manifested itself though in, in those yeah. reports, you know what i mean even i didn't realize that it was so uh you know such an effort and sabotage you know yeah. I was pretty dismayed. It was pretty dismaying reading, to be honest with you. But and again, you think, well, in reality, we were only five or six thousand votes, I think, away from winning. Yeah. You know, if they'd been in the right seats at the right places, we'd actually had enough to to turn over the Tories. Yeah. And I think you know, you know what a tragedy. Um, but that's. I mean, then I, I don't understand why people then responded by saying, "I've had enough. I'm leaving the party." So I'm like, well, you're just, in, you're just, in, you're just kind of reinforcing their position. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to have people in to 
make sure the right candidates get into the right positions and so on. You know, otherwise you're just surrendering any control you had to go and join what the, the Greens or something like that. The Greens are never going to be in government. You know what I mean? So, you know what I mean? Like, be part of the project to influence it, you know, rather yeah. than just saying, oh, it's not pure enough for me. I think yeah. it's always been one of the, the strengths of the Labour Party for me is that it's always encouraged a broad church and different opinions are welcome and maybe no always, you know, people find consensus or whatever. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm kinda, I think the biggest challenge for Starmer than who is taking this information and what's going on in the last couple of years and actually pulling that church sort of back together and moving it on the one direction. I'm, well, I'm hoping that you can do it. Labour needs to get to a situation where its collective desire to win is greater than its hate for each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and it's a bit like, you know, it is a bit mind-blowing from my point of view that some people would rather the Tories won than we won, you know, for the sake of destroying yeah. the faction that was in charge at the time, you know. And I, and I think if you're in that situation, that's pretty grim, you know. Yeah. And I hope that if anything, Keir's shrewd enough to be able to bring the parties, groups together, the trade unions, the, the different societies um, and various brand, various different factional groups to say, look, now is the time for us to get a Labour government in power, you know, and actually focus on destroying the Tory party. You know, because mm-hmm. uh, I think if that willpower is greater than any disdain that's within the party, which has always been there, you know, as it's, 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 I grew up in a kind of messy coalition of, Left groups in the early 1900s yep. to try and put socialists into parliament. You know what I mean? It's not. It's never been a kind of corporate organisation. You know what I mean? Uh, mm. Like the Tory party is, where you know they can just swipe out all these MPs like, just because the leader doesn't like them, like Ken Clark and all that. Like you saw, Boris yeah. the, you know, you, the leader of the Labour Party would never be able to deselect people like that. You know. So, um, you know, I think it's it's kind of getting into that mindset of the left in the 90s was so depressed by, you know, 18 years of Tory rule that they agreed, you know, like Blair's maybe the guy that will get his, get his into power, mm-hmm. you know, and then at least we can take it from there. And obviously mm-hmm. there was successes and failures, you know, some large and some small, you know what I mean? And they can chew over the legacy of that government, you know, mm-hmm. but there's clearly things to point to that were good and, you know, massive failures as well, you know uh, what I mean? Yeah, we spoke then, last week, but I, I posed the question to Mark, like, would... Would you be happy with uh, Keir Starmer if it was Tony Blair minus Iraq? Um, and I think that I would, I would genuinely be happy with that at this point. Like, I, I think, mean, and the that, thing is, like, people, when people when people complain about Starmer, he tried to take Blair to court over the Iraq war. You know, <laughs> these are the no, things that we don't hear though, because the, the the media don't put that out there for people. They, 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 yeah. I mean, there seems to be this sort of strange thing that's happened where the the media and specifically in the UK and America have managed to shatter the left through this identity thing that's happening where it's about very specific things. So if you believe in one thing, that's okay. But if you don't believe in the same entirety sort of thing that I believe in, then I can't be associated with you. It's, we're getting put into these different wee factions, whereas the right have managed to do what you just said there, the left did in the 90s, where they rally behind these people that they see being able to get them into power and then we'll take it for there. But I don't see that working, especially I think the right in America has made a big mistake with Trump and I think that they're making the same mistake here with Boris, where these people are going to get into power and they're going to take full advantage of that. 
instead yeah. of the right being able to sort of manipulate it and, and make it whatever it is that they want to make it. Um, no, but, that's a good point. And you also can't underestimate the Tory party's desire to cling on to power, you know. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a big part of it is actually Labour fundamentally looking at the system that exists in the country. And I was having a chat with some colleagues the other night about this and saying, you know, I think in the last 100 years, Labour's been in power for 34 years. You know, the current system exists to perpetuate Tory rule. You know, so my view would be in the next um, elections, Labour should go into agreeing to change the proportional representation. Because actually across the UK, a majority of people vote for the Greens, the Liberal Democrats, SNP and Labour. You know what I mean? So like in Parliament, if it was PR, there would be a majority of seats there reflecting progressive political views, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And yet we end up with Tory majorities. So, you know, I would actually say maybe now is the time to confront that reality and say, look, we need to to actually gain 140 seats in 2024, which is bigger than Blair got in 97. So it's a massive task, right? Yeah. My, my thinking would be, do you do a deal with the Liberal Democrats and the Greens? It might be more difficult with the SNP because we're like in competition for the same seats, but you might do a deal with um, the Greens and the, the Lib Dems in England and say, stand aside in the seats where you split the vote and the Tories win, and that might get us enough over the line, but the quid pro quo is to agree to PR um, if we get that government. Yeah. That might, be a, that might be something that needs to be thought about in the next four years. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Absolutely. It's going to be impossible to get the Tories to agree to that without an election one, to be fair. They're never going to vote against oh, yeah. self-interest in that respect. But I, I'd love to see the mere progressive parties. I think there was an opportunity to do it. Um, you know, through, re- <laughs> yeah, in recent years. And it's it's one of the things that we need to be more open to. Um, if we're all against the Tories and their policies, then, you know, there is room to work together and compromise on the issues that you have in common. The Scottish Parliament kind of was set up with that idea, but we're culturally still in that mindset of the winner takes all. Uh, yeah. We've never been able to, and even in, you get these things in councils where it's like, oh, you've done a deal with them, you've done a deal with them. And it's like, well, you know, how do we get into a position in politics where we're more chilled out about collaboration? You know, and it's, it's something that's seen as something that taints or undermines your credibility as a party. Yeah. You know, and I think there's a there's a difficult cultural issue in our country where it's all about you know you need to conquer the other side and destroy them completely, mm-hmm. and then you rule, you rule with a an iron fist for however many years. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's no it's not exactly the most healthy approach. I, I definitely have always been a fan of proportional representation. I'd love it to be something that comes in in a more sort of widespread. I know obviously we had a, a referendum on it that well, was an alternative vote or something like that. I um, it didn't really pan no. out. It was half arsed, you know. The, yeah. And it was it was classic, like uh, Nick Clegg just kind of selling out to the David Cameron, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think I wouldn't even have a referendum on it. I would just go, it's in a manifesto we're going to bring in. Who had a referendum on first past the post? You know, when did that when did that get agreed? Yeah. You know? So I would just go, fuck it, you know. Um, let's, uh, let's just put Aye, it in You want it, vote us in. Right? Mm-hmm. Seems yeah. fair. How do you feel the Scottish government have performed during the crisis? Well, I mean, it's an unveil. Who saw it coming? You know what I mean? And it's hard. To, it's, it's easy to sit here and go, oh, that should have been done. This should have been done. And I think it, we aren't in possession of all the information that was available to the First Minister or the, or the Prime Minister. You know what I mean? We're only, we're only looking through the keyhole here about the full, the full array of advice that was being given. You know what I mean? 
Mm -hmm. um, so it's difficult at this stage in the game to sort of make blanket statements about failures and so on. All you can do is judge on evidence. And, um, and I think, you know, I'm sure everybody's been motivated to some, well, to a greater or lesser extent by the right intentions. I'd certainly say more so in the Scottish government. I think Boris Johnson and the Tories might be more um, compromised by their willingness not to harm business. Yep. You know, and that would have been a bigger consideration for them. Uh, they probably had lobbyists in the year going, oh, we don't want to shut down stuff because it would harm our, you know, activity. Um, I don't think that would be as much of an issue necessarily in the Scottish government. But I think there's obviously things that have come out like that Nike conference and you're like, well, what was going on there, you know? And also, mm -hmm. like, stuff around why aren't we ramping up um, testing? Why was there such a sort of group think at the start around the way things were going, you know? And I do wonder about mapping out how the, the decision-making was, was occurring through, like, SAGE, this kind of secretive group of um, scientists, and then, like, the health, the public um, chief health officers and so on, and then to government ministers. You know, it'd be interesting to map how that information was actually functioning at the time. Yeah. What sort of advice... Especially with guys like Cummings in the mix. Well, how I mean, much it was being filtered through his lens would be extremely interesting to see. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know... The thing about protect the NHS, but that involved mass discharging into care homes. Was there any consideration about the impact that that might have in yep. terms of seeding the virus in care homes? You know, mm -hmm. you do wonder whether these things weren't looked at. You know, what strikes me is that, like, even poor countries um, that have had experience of these pandemics before, like Vietnam, have responded with a far greater effectiveness yep. than we have. You know, and we had a slightly racist approach to it to start with, but mm -hmm. not necessarily. Not necessarily um, consciously. I think it was unconsciously racist, where we were like, um, "Well, this is something that happens in the Far East." You know, it's, it's you know, it's SARS. You know, it's like Hong yep. Kong's war. You know, you always see them walking around with face masks on. You know, there was an element of that where it's, it's not going to come to here. Yeah. You know, and um, I think the last two petered out. I think when the last two, the, the SARS and the um, swine flu broke. Yeah. We were told that it had the potential to be as big as COVID nineteen has, has has proven to be. But with those two kind of petering out short of the line, I think it did leave us with at least a level of complacency. We were just it's just you know another one yeah. of these viruses for that part of the world. And obviously, ten years of austerity hasn't helped because we've had a threadbare care sector. But even things like my pal has been working in the, the hospital, Queen Elizabeth. And like, there's been no stockpiles of PP. There was like exercises carried out by the government like um, six or seven years ago, planning for a pandemic that was based on a flu pandemic, admittedly. Um, but even then, things like you know stockpiles of gowns, of protective equipment, of visors, and things like that, these should have been all in warehouses ready to go. You know yep. what I mean? They should have been kept in date. You know, they should be refreshed every few years. But obviously. When you've got budget cuts, the first thing you're going to do is, well, this stuff's lying in a warehouse and there's no obvious need for it, so we'll get rid yeah. of that before cutting stuff that's more immediate. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's the problem with austerity. You know, they talk about making efficiencies. You know, first thing you're going to do is, well, why are we paying hundreds of thousands of pounds for this warehouse full of stuff that we're not using? Yeah. You know. Um, the short-term thinking and that's disastrous, though, isn't it? I mean, that's just so, like, short-term that it's, it's scary that people that are in charge of the money that we're talking about and the amount of people that we're talking about are that so short-sighted that they can't see past their own four years or whatever. I think well, that's a big issue. Well, my thinking would have been, 
we've been so hot to globalization. You know, look at the whole thing over ventilators, for example. Like, I think going, you know, in the future, we'll be like, there'll be national plans now for like, if we need ventilators, there'll be companies ready to go with the designs and they'll be able to switch to it very quickly. There'll be like, um, there'll be protocols developed for like how to plan to expand hospital capacity. You know, um, yeah. the protocols around storage of PPE and how that's gotten out. You know, the reality is we basically were caught with our trousers down big time, you know, yeah. uh, and there's no getting away from that reality, you know, and who's been in power for the last 10 years. You know, Aye. so I think that needs to all come out in the wash. You know, there's no way, I, you know, shirking responsibility. OK, we can all claim we didn't see it coming, but there were plans in place that weren't adhered yeah. to. I think when you look at Panorama, they made it fairly clear straight off the bat that the entire world has been told for pretty much the last 15 years that this is the the big event that everybody needs to be effectively planning for. So as much as, you know, let's not even just say this government, as much as any government might turn around and say, look, this came out of nowhere, I'm a bit reluctant to kind of accept that myself. As much as we didn't know that it was going to happen this month or this quarter or whatever it is, the, the science has been there for 15 years telling them this is the, this is the one, this is what you need to be ready for. And it is quite telling that so many governments, and not even just those, but, you know, PPE is something that people are struggling to get a hold of all over the world. You know what I mean? Like, well, I um, there's stories that have been stocked up in Chinese docks and they don't have enough shipment containers to move them at this point. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's uh, quite odd that we've 15 years notice so many go it's so wrong. I think you're right. And, and I suppose that necessity becomes the mother of invention, doesn't it? You know, and to an mm. extent, uh, like you were saying with uh, working from home, the technologies might have existed, but the impetus didn't exist, you know. And I think this is going to change culturally a lot of things. It's a bit like one of those seminal events, like 9 11 or whatever, yeah. you know, that you know just changes the whole next decade, you know, um, and what happens thereafter. Um, and that, you know, we might find like the Spanish flu in 1918, it just spontaneously burns out. You know, it's, it's just went through the population at such a rate that it's then burnt out as a, as a virus, mm-hmm. the transmission has. And that happens before we even have a vaccine. You know, uh, you know the Spanish flu came in two big waves. Um, and the worry is, you know, coming out of this lockdown, are we then just going to set ourselves up for another even bigger wave? Uh, yep. Yeah, we're you know, already seeing reports of the R number rising. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah, so it is kind of concerning that the protocols and the efforts haven't been put in place, but that's because, you know, there's been a very free market thinking about, you know, globalization, offshoring. Um, we don't need national systems in place to deal with things. We don't need the same sort of central planning that we might have had in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, even around, like, um, res- mobilizing reservists and things, I don't have any reservists anymore, really, to deal with, like, expanding capacity in the NHS. You know, we, all these things were dismantled after the Cold War. You know what I mean? So um, I think there's been a big, big wake-up call for, like, how you create national resilience, you know? I so hope it is anyway. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> so, see, to move away, well, I don't know if it, if it is moving away, depending on how you answer. Um, seen obviously, in the last few days, you've, you've been out in the boot in the press pretty um talking about, you know, your changes since, you know, Losing the recent election, which obviously I was sorry about, um, and I think there was talk about your experience in applying for universal credit. Um, this is something that, I, as something that I was, uh, 
I'm quite surprised. I don't think most people expect to hear that maybe somebody with an MP's background is then a universal credit uh, claimant. But at the same time, it makes perfect sense in the current context. But like, it seems as though there's been quite a, well, a fairly predictable bit of fucking backlash for idiots on, you know, the yes side of things and whatnot. Like, I, I had a wee, you, I know you tweeted it out as well, kind of like check the, the state of some of these guys, and I actually did. And like, some of them are an embarrassment. Uh, it, it's like, how do you create this progressive care in Scotland when you can't actually show human compassion for somebody? It's, well, it's a weird one. I think the problem is culturally, politics have become more like a football game. You know, yeah. and, uh, it's almost as entrenched as the old firm. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, and is that same sort of current a bitterness through it, where we've gone away from the idea? It's politics as a culture war. You know what I mean? It's, it's it's not politics as I've listened to this position and I think that's all right. It's not politics as an exchange of ideas based on no. best for the community. You know, it's more fundamental <clears throat> about identity and and all these kind of bigger questions that make it a much yeah. visceral and emotional thing. You know, and I, and I find that maybe the coronavirus might change our culture in that respect, where we're looking at things with a less simplistic sort of um, identity politics brand, you know what I mean? Uh, less tribal. I can say, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I know as well you were tweeting out that you'd, your kind of experience as you've been going through the process, and it's something we've had a previous guest discuss with, Alex Tiffin and stuff like that, who's quite a prominent... Um, sort of universal credit blogger and stuff like yeah. that over the years. I mean, um, I, to be fair, I mean... I, my my extent of interaction with it was um helping by all of it, you know, in various yeah. different ways, whether it was through getting sanctioned or getting um you know, ruled fit to work despite being obviously unwell, you know, these kind of ridiculous um, outcomes that people were yeah. having, or were transitioning from the old benefits onto the new system and end up massively out of pocket and stuff like that. You know, um and also just the quite punitive way it's designed. Like it's a, it's, a, it's designed psychologically to sort of um deter you from using it you know yes but funnily enough you know even in the last eight weeks they've had to simplify the system because it crashed under the weight of people applying for it you know so my interaction with it was actually fairly straightforward because um as far as i've progressed in the process so far it's doing a an online application and then firing it in and you know it was a bit as complex as doing your your your, um your car insurance, you know what I mean? Okay. You know, so it was actually fairly it was actually fairly straightforward. But um that's not to say it's not difficult for lots of people who don't have IT literacy yeah. a millennial, you know, aren't physically and mentally pretty healthy. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um but it also doesn't go to say that the system as it existed up until the start of the crash wasn't worse. You know all, all I've done is fill out this form and then I'm waiting on someone phoning me back, which hasn't yet happened, you right. know, so I could yet encounter a lot more difficulties with it, you know, you know, so I just think part of it was about removing the stigma from it because a lot of people were like locally saying, oh, I'd never apply for it, you know, I'm too good for it. Um, a lot of people also were quite intimidated by it because I've heard all these horror stories. Yeah. So part of it for me was like, well, at least start the ball rolling, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not that difficult start the ball rolling and then just see how you get on with it. Um, it's quite odd that people sometimes feel that way. I mean, it's like when, you know, I've been redundant in various points over the last sort of five or six years, moving between jobs and whatnot. Uh, things like job seekers allowance, you know, if you were, you're, you know, previously you'd be unemployed, you'd go on, you know, what used to be the door or whatever. 
and that became so stigmatised that a lot of people themselves will say, "Look, I just, I just rather concentrate on trying." It's weird that we think that something that we have contributed to and we're entitled to is this burden. Like we pay for yeah. it through our taxes, we pay for it through our work. Like it's ours. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's it's self defeating to think otherwise. You know, because um, it's in no one's interest to see in financial hardship. You know, as a community. No. So mm-hmm. you know, going back to that point about UBI, of course, but. I think um, my thinking was really, you know, I've been lucky enough to have had basically a, a source of income since I was like 14, you know, around, you know, had part-time jobs at school at uni um, and then went into a graduate job and I've been continuously employed up until the point where I lost my seat, you know. So it was a fairly novel experience at 31 to suddenly find having been in fairly decent jobs all the yeah. 20s to now sit, be in this kind of situation and then when this lockdown hits, you know what I mean? So the lo- it became logical to me because I was like, well, I might as well take advantage of this three-month uh, mortgage holiday that they've got. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking, well, actually looking at my finances, I do qualify for UC, so why wouldn't I apply for it? Absolutely. You know, that, that right. was my, so that was my that was my thinking, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm like, and a lot of people obviously aren't in the luxurious position where they've got a bit of savings that will see them through the next, you know, four weeks or whatever. Um, a lot of people need immediate upfront payment. You know what I mean. So, whilst I'm not as you know panicking about like I need it now sort of thing, I'm just saying, well, why wouldn't you set the ball rolling to try and get help? I mean, obviously, I'm still kind of like seeing what's happening. I've, you know, people are like, well, maybe we can see if we can sort you out with something. But yeah. I'm like, well, if anybody, the first, you know, it's almost like a fire drill. You know, if you find yourself out of work, the first thing you do is apply for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I don't see why you would hold off. Do you know what I mean? Well, my, my girlfriend's yeah. self-employed and because the self-employed payment took until, she, well, she's still not got it, but she's got her email telling her what she gets or whatever. Um, she applied for universal credit and it was the conversation that we had to have with each other where it was like, there's nothing wrong with you applying for this. And I think it's because of the way that the media portrays people that claim benefits. It just makes people really not want to be put into that sort of stigmatized position of like oh, i'm gonna need to go and do this yeah um, i mean it's not something that's a lifestyle you know it's it's it's, it's not something that's sustainable as a lifestyle uh, you know, i mean they've made the made the tories have certainly made sure of that you know yeah. and i think it's pure yes my 87 pound came in the day let's party you know what I, mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean i had i had more as a student coming in you know what i mean <laughs> but, but like uh my point is it takes the edge off things, you know, it's better than nothing. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't imagine it'll be, you know, a long, you know, hopefully only a matter of weeks before something gets sorted out, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I was yeah. trying to make the point that, uh, I was just trying to make the point that if your MP, ex-MPs having to do it, you know, most people are from a working class background in Scotland. You need a salary to live off of or some form of steady income. That's, you know, we're not all capitalists who live off of, you know, income and uh, investments in the stock market you know yeah, uh, yeah. so you know we're going to need a salary to live off of and that's my definition of what working class is people often go oh, working it doesn't mean anything anymore i was like well the definition for me of working class or if you want to blot it a bit lower middle class is if you need a income a waged or salaried income to survive you know what i mean and i suppose the definition you know difference between working class and lower middle class might be to the extent to which you have like a disposable income to go on holidays and stuff like that, you know, yeah. but you know, the fundamental economics of it is that, you know, the Duke of the Clue isn't going to be applying for fucking universal credit, is it? You yeah, know what I mean? Definitely no. not. So, why do you think you know, then, why do you think the, 
your intention because that totally makes sense to me and I'm actually like really like glad that somebody in your position actually was I'm going to put myself out there and be like I'm claiming this for a way at saying to people you should absolutely be fucking claiming for this if you qualify go and do it like I think that's great and like well done to you but why do you think it was so misinterpreted as like oh cry me a river you look at this this is somebody out here well there's people in worse positions and not um, the intent that you, you intended it yeah, it's just bad faith, really. You know, you're going to get that from just, you know, but um, I hope that the broader message got through. You know, maybe it was the, you know, I hadn't planned to, to be some great media thing. You know, I, I just was like, oh, shit, I'm actually, like, going to do this. So I was like, well, I might as well say on Twitter, you know, I've actually just done a UC application. You know, I hadn't, you know, I didn't expect it to go into these articles and things like that. But I just, then afterwards, I had a couple of phone calls from journalists who were like, oh, would you talk a bit about this? I was like, well, yeah, you know, if you want me to offer like a context to it, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, no, you're, I think you're right about, you know, it was a shame that people were thinking it was uh, some sort of attention-seeking exercise. You know, it really wasn't mm-hmm. my main intention with it. My main intention was um, to Lead try... by and, example? Well, it was to try and say to my, you know, it was try to get give people confidence that it's not mm-hmm. that big a deal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and obviously people are going to read into it saying... Um, or it's an attention seeker. I don't think it's a classic way of seeking attention to sort of illustrate vulnerability like that, you know. So uh, no, I can't imagine that's how other people would approach it. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I, I would say tune it out if you've not already done that. You know what I mean? Like because it's this. It was way beyond a personal attack. It was. It was. The, well, like, they were like, they were attacking the character that they've created in their head of you rather than like anything that you've ever actually sort of said or done really you know what I mean there like, was people posting footage for question time in like in 2014 <laughs> and stuff it was like what the fuck is uh, going on here like it was not a, it was not a good look was it only the um, the funny thing is that they didn't see the the actual opposite and what they were saying you know they were calling me a red Tory I'm like the very <laughs> You, by your Aye. criticism of people who are in this situation, are the very, you know, you're actually Aye. being a Tory by... You're benefit-shaming me. This hasn't happened in the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I just found it very odd. You know, but it just shows you how a lot of politics is more um, about emotion than logic. You know what I mean? I've seen quite a bit of that the day. This is one of the, This is almost word for word the same conversation I had online with somebody before we went live this afternoon. It was about the the Glasgow Green um, anti-lockdown protests and yeah. how sort of kind of really ridiculous these these are, um, you know. And what I'd said to one of our, our followers was like, I kind of feel sorry for these people because, you know, it's they're being told that their emotions are more valuable than fact and that once that's actually bedded in with people, they're then having their emotions toyed with and the results are that people are, getting the wrong end of the stick intentionally. People are out protesting stuff that really doesn't make any sense. And there are a number of things in recent weeks that have kind of been almost kind of outbursts. They're a very similar thing. And it's that, as you say, people are, are thinking emotionally because they're, they're told that's where their value is, is that they can be and say and do whatever they want as long as they feel that that's their right to do it, whether yeah. it's actually true or no. You know what I mean? No, oh, I, I, I think there's been a big problem with manipulation of, reality for a lot of um, people which has been fairly cynical you know we talk about the, the plague of fake news online and um, you know if you're out if you're lacking human contact and interaction you're locked in a room 
24 hours a day with their only form of interface with the rest of the world being, you know, conspiracy theories on YouTube or, or, or your echo chamber. You know, it could very quickly, you know, you know, destroy your frame of reference. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. And you've been constantly fed this idea that you know, um, the the virus has been communicated through 5G and all this sort of shit. You know, um, which is just mind blowing that that that, that is. is action. You know. But it's a bit like, you know, you're like, Christ, this must, be, must have been what it's like to have lived through the witch trials and stuff like that, you know, just this superstitious Aye. culture, you know. Uh, good comparison. You know, just like, this must have been what it was like um, to have actually seen this kind of stuff going on, you know, because maybe since we've had, like, like, industrial society where there's been an education system and stuff, it's, and there's been very clear ways of communicating to the population through newspapers and radio and, and television. Um, it's, it's maybe since we've had social media that this sort of thing's exploded as an issue, you know. There's always been conspiracy theorists on the fringes, you know, like aliens and UFOs and stuff like that, but it's, yeah. never, been, it's never been as sort of big as, a, as, a, as it seems to be now. Or maybe it's just Aye. it gives it more of a platform than I've ever realised. I mean, the press last week went to a quote for David Icke on the First Minister, and you're like, in what world did somebody be like, let's go and ask David Icke what he thinks of Nicola Sturgeon? You're like, that's no... I think, I think that's also a symptom of the, the real decline in the print media. Yeah. Um, the, the, the structures of editing ed, editing, sorry, and uh, writing in, in the press has really declined, so there isn't the same sort of uh, quality checking going on, you know, yeah. Some desk journalist who's straight out of uni can just put a new write up on the Herald website, you know, mm -hmm. without much of a check, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm worried that that's um, become a problem, you know. Yeah, it's also the, the real scrutiny in journalism is lacking now as well because you're often getting stuff that's just press releases cut and pasted, you know, and there's nobody mm -hmm. sitting there going, Is this just bullshit? I'm being fed, maybe I should, yeah. maybe I should dig into this a bit because nobody's got time because they're just having to put up five or ten stories to make their their quota each day. I mean, you know, we had that in relation to this meeting with um, STV. I think STV got their, a, a bit of a shouting down online because this Glasgow Green protest had been kind of tweeted about by them kind of verbatim in the road and somebody was like, well, hold on a minute. You've kind of just promoted this rather than questioned the need for it. And to, to their credit, the head of STV News actually came out and tweeted himself saying, look, we, we did not give us the level of scrutiny that it required. We've deleted the tweet and kind of moved on. So that's one of the very few examples we've actually seen it in action, but it's few yeah. and far between exactly, as you say. It comes press as gossip rather than actual journalism, you know, and yeah. that's, that's the, the worry, you know. There's a big yeah. issue with that. I think there's another big issue as well where the, the conspiracy theories on the fringes of things post 60, 60s through to like the 90s, things like... UFOs, um, aliens, and and then we get declassified documents that come out 10, 15, 20 years later that actually confirm that they were real things. And now we've got people going, well, that means flat earth is real. And that means that QAnon is real because look at all these things that we believed in the past. It's almost like confirming their bias towards the conspiracy, whereas it's like, well, a government having it's advanced a technology and a, and a plane is completely different to them lying to you and the moon being a fucking hologram, mate. Like, that's like two, <laughs> two different yeah. things. Yeah, it's a logical fallacy, isn't it? You know, that this was this is true, therefore this is true. You know, it's... Mm -hmm. um, but it's just something he's robustly challenged. And unfortunately, 
I just find it mentally exhausting on Twitter to engage with a lot of people now. You know, it's mm-hmm. um, I, I tend to be quite discerning. I mean, people have been have been ridiculed for being blo- blocking lots of people on Twitter. My rule just is if you're annoying me, shite, you get blocked. You know, okay. and, uh, you it's know, and I, don't really, I don't really need to justify that more than anything. Yeah. Else. If you're vexatious, engaging in bad faith, um, or like insulting, then you know, fuck you. I don't care. You know, you're getting blocked. I don't need to deal, you know, my fucking life's stressful enough without having to deal with that shit every day. Absolutely. So, uh, just inviting, you're just inviting in, aren't you, otherwise? I'm, I'm the same well, as you, I'm like, I'm like, after I've blocked thousands of accounts that were like that, and these bot accounts or, or just these nutters that sit in my bedroom with their, you know, in their pants t- tweeting all sorts of shit at you, um, actually, my, my Twitter... Kind of describes Twitter, both me and Paul. Nutters in my room tweeting shit at you. I think we all have our moments, but like... Uh, the, um, my point is that after doing that, my mental health is far better than engaging in these platforms, you know, because you're not, and everybody's like, oh, you'll have a thick skin. See, if you're just getting wall-to-wall abuse 24 hours a day, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's obviously going to be having a psychological effect, yeah. you know, whether, whether unconscious or consciously, you know. So, um, no, nah, it's better just to get rid of it completely, you know. I completely agree, mate. Completely um, agree. You know, and, and occasionally, like, I've... Things that you found people that you've blocked to you actually go back and check and say ah, it was just that kind of argument at the time, but you know I've unblocked them now and it's been fine, you know. But my my view is you know Twitter is just such a vicious sewer, you know that um, if you're going to have any sort of um, you know with whatever it is seventeen thousand followers, you know you're going to end up getting just totally bombarded unless you have a, a really strict approach to dealing with yeah. zoomers on it, you know. Absolutely, uh, mate. Man. I'll use the analogy with Matt before where engaging with some nutter on Twitter's like engaging with the same as thing as engaging with a nutter on the street. If somebody was walking walking up and down Sucky Hall Street screaming at the top of their voice, you wouldn't run up and scream back or you wouldn't go up and try and have a, a rational well, conversation. You would stay clear. Well, often, bo- often these wee fannies would never do it in person. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's easy to act the big man. It's a bit like having road rage, you know, it's easy to shout abuse at somebody when you're sitting in a car and they can't hear you, you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's like, it's, it's fine when you're hiding behind, you know, um, you know, whatever um, fake... Uh, I like a salt-tired avatar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, Sawyer Alba 13, 14, whatever it might be, you know. Uh, but, <laughs> just, just really, you know, there's a certain type, you know, there's different categories. There's, uh, either, yeah. there's either they kind of Brexit gammons, or there's a kind of kind of unicorn uh, like uh, nationalist identity. <laughs> we're we're quite popular with Billy Loyal seventy twos. Well, there's a few of them. Well, you know, there's a, there's a few of them that were uh, you know the the kind of had a go as well over corporate and stuff. Like that, you know, so um, you can't win. You can't win. You know, you're getting it from every angle. Absolutely. So what's next so, for you, man? Like what's what's, what's right keep, myself? Is that what you're going to say, there, man? <laughs> It's almost like we shared notes sometimes. I know, like we're just well, I mean, on the same page. I mean, part of the, I mean, we'll just need to wait and see. Like I said, you know, there might be an opportunity to do some campaigning work with the party um, over the next few months, but everything's kind of gummed up just now because of the furlough scheme and everything. So just keeping a, keeping a, an open mind to what to do. Um, obviously, I'm, I only get two years as an MP, so I'm kind of championing the bit to get back into politics as soon as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm more likely than not um, attempt to run for the Glasgow Regional List for the Labour Party. Um, the constituencies... 2021? Yeah, the constituencies locally have um, selected their candidates. So 
um, the regional list is open. Um, but they don't, I don't think the process has been agreed yet. It's probably going to be towards the end of the year, I think. Right. Uh, so how that works is basically there's about 5,000 Labour Party members in Glasgow um, and they'll get balloted, asked who do they want to rank on the regional list. I think there's like seven spots. Um, and looking at the polling, you know, we're probably looking at like three, four, um, if we're really turning it around five, you know, we might win a constituency. Um, so that changes the calculus again. So okay. I'll, give it, I'll give it a crack, you know, and um, obviously there's also the option of my, my running again for my constituency at Glasgow North East in 2024 when the election comes up, you know. So I, I definitely think I found my vacation being an MP, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was challenging, obviously, but I think I just, it's one of those jobs where it didn't feel like a job, if you know what I mean. It was just more like yeah. a kind of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely feel like I found my groove in it, but even though it was, well, that particular parliament was super stressful given the whole carry on with Brexit and all that. But mm-hmm. I think actually if you had a, if you had a, a bit of a more settled period in politics, it'd be a really good thing to get into. It'd be nice if we had a, a month where just everything <laughs> was no annoying. Just just one yeah. like four-week period where somebody was like, right, guys, like, time out. We're just, we're just taking the next week off, you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. um, I think when you were last in, Parliament had essentially been furloughed to facilitate some of Johnson's nonsense oh, yeah, and uh, was, what you've come back with the whole nation followed. So know, interesting it's times. It's wild. So uh, definitely through the looking glass, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um, like I say, 10 years ago, if you'd said I'd be an MP, I'd have laughed at you, you know, so who knows what the next 10 years might hold, you know? Absolutely, <laughs> mate. That's a good, that's just a good thing for you to be open-minded in general because look at what's been going on the last sort of eight weeks I mean again life's very unpredictable and I think that there'll, there'll be a lot of changes in people's mentality when we come out the other side of this so good luck to you and, and whatever it is that you're deciding to go and do well, thanks very much I for think, coming on doing the, it's doing been the good to see you again man I hope you're keeping well and you Always know keep, keep in touch I used to and uh, no doubt to see you around <laughs> absolutely Definitely. take care of yourself buddy alright see you later on see you later mate hey Enjoyed that, that went well. Aye, mate, that was good. Thanks very much, Paul. No bother at all. No cracking conversation for his man. Um, yeah. Aye, man, I'm just going to get going because I've been, I've, I've, aye, I've got so much to do. It's, it's not even funny aye. for work and stuff, but aye, I'll get this up and oh, we'll let you know when you, it's out, mate. Yeah. Aye, man. Go for it. Okay. Thanks again, Paul. See you soon. See you later. See, See you later, mate. Cheers, Cheers, mate. Aye, mate. Catch you soon. It grows below the upper line You know you try to hold you tightly by my side When all is crashing down You'll never reach the surface You live underground Sky fire comes around When the steel ring falls to the ground There is panic on the streets A blackened sea full of shuffling feet Sky fire can't you see You can try but you won't break me